All right. Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. Second here. All right, Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. And when and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching in the temple daily. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Growing up, um, my dad liked to play country music, and not like that new pop country stuff. Talk about real country music. So, and it doesn't get any more real than Randy Travis. And so, and now one song that always stuck with me uh, with Randy Travis was his song "Good Intentions." You remember that one? And so, you know, it's a, it's a deeply as 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 true country is. It's very depressing. It's a very sad. Song. Real country is sad and depressing, right? And so, and that's what good intentions is. It's about a man who, uh, who, who has every intention uh, to do right by his mom, uh, by his son, uh, and others, but he falls far, far short of his good intentions. And the song repeats what is considered to be an old English proverb that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. People intend to do something good, but they either don't do it or they, uh, the way they go about it leads them astray. And this is true of God's people as well. Good intentions can, in time, pervert the Christian faith. So many of the scandals in churches and Christian organizations start with somebody wanting to do something noble. You know, there are the charlatans who begin out to scam and they want to scam. But so many of the scandals actually started with someone who wanted to do something big for Jesus. They wanted to help the needy. They wanted to start an apologetics ministry. And then immediately or along the way, they got off course. Well, in our text today, we encounter a geography of good intentions. First, in the city of Jerusalem itself. And then in the temple, which resides there. So this morning, we're going to consider Jesus as he laments for the lost city of Jerusalem. And then how he brings reformation to the defiled temple. First, in verses 41 to 44, we see that Jesus laments for the lost city. 
And in verse 41, we note right at the outset what we can call the godly grief of Jesus. The godly grief of Jesus. Now, the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time had recently, only recently, become a major city with a new temple and a new palace built both by Herod the Great. And the Jewish people were very proud, as they you know, would understandably be, of all the new improvements to their city. However, the garrisons of Roman soldiers strategically positioned throughout the city to put down any hint of insurrection were a constant reminder of the price they had to pay for said improvements, which was subservience to Rome. Housed in the city on any given day were about 80,000 residents in Jerusalem. But due to the Passover, the city was teeming with Jewish pilgrims, with estimates running as high as 200,000 people in the city for Passover. And so what does Jesus do when he comes and he sees this magnificent city? Just just bursting, teeming with life, and it's this swelling population. He weeps. He weeps. And weeping is not just shedding a little quiet tear. This is the you know what they call ugly crying. It's the word that's used for mourning the dead. Jesus mourns over the city as though it was dead, as though he were at the funeral. But he's not weeping over literal bricks and mortar. He's weeping over the people of the city, what the city represents. People who do not, people who will not receive the Christ and will in time come under the sword. Jesus knows what is about to happen to him and at the hands and even the cheers of these people. Yet he weeps over them. Why would he weep over those who hate and despise him? Why would he weep for those who would mistreat and reject him? He does. So Matthew Henry wrote, The sin and folly of those that persist in the contempt of gospel grace are a great grief to the Lord Jesus and should be so to us. Jesus looks with weeping eyes upon lost souls that continue impenitent and run headlong into their own ruin. And so should we. J.C. Ryle rounds out this thought, saying that hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their own conduct. But one thing they will never be able to say is that Christ was not merciful. That he didn't care. That he was not ready to save. The tears of Christ ought to soften our own hearts to the lost in our own city. To the lost in our own neighborhoods. To the lost in our own families. It is godly and Christ-like to feel the impulse to weep for the lost and to cry out to God for them. And so we see the godly grief of Jesus in his weeping over the city in verse 41. And coupled right along with that, we see the inexcusable ignorance of sinners in verse 42. Jesus expresses his longing that the people would know the things that would make for peace, peace between them and God. But these things are hidden from their eyes. But why are they hidden? 
Now, ultimately, yes, we must go back to the God's sovereign plan that requires the rejection of Christ so that he will go to the cross for the sins of his people. But these things are, are, are hidden immediately like uh, as, as, as a first order because not because there's, you know, there's, there's just the sovereign plan of God and there's nothing else in between. But the immediate reason why they cannot see them is because of their own stubborn, sinful blindness. The arguments that will take the day eventually condemning Jesus will be in service of preserving the status quo of the current system that has come to uh, come, you know, work simpatico between uh, pagan Roman dominance and Jewish legalism. It is indeed in fulfillment of prophecies, prophecies like those found in the in, in the prophet Isaiah, that highlight the willful blindness of a people who do not want to to repent, even if they are presented with the opportunity to do so. And there is indeed a tension here that we can feel between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We feel it in the text. But it is a tension that Paul addresses well in his first letter, I mean his letter in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, where he says at the outset there that fallen man has in his sinful state perverted the knowledge of God and thus blinded himself to the truth. In man's twisted mind, he he is pursuing the truth but actually is receiving and celebrating a lie. In the end, man only has enough knowledge to condemn himself before the living God. And so looking out over Jerusalem, Jesus weeps over the inexcusable ignorance of sinners. And then he describes in verses 43 to 44 the definite destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus knows what is coming in a matter of decades, just a few decades, in A.D. 70, uh, under the reign of Titus. The Jewish people, seeing an opportunity, will revolt, and the emperor Titus will respond with brutal, devastating destruction. Jesus uses a repetition of synonyms expressing how completely surrounded and cut off from help Jerusalem will be. And like siblings building blocks near one another in the playroom, the Romans will not leave one stone on top of another. You know, because the sibling goes over to the other sibling and (laughs) knocks over their tower. So, And they will bring death, not just to the city, but cutting off even the future generations of the city. Jesus indicates that this is essentially judgment for what the city is about to do to him. Because they should have recognized the time of their visitation. They should have. They were responsible to recognize the coming of the Christ. Now in the Old Testament, the idea of visitation had a positive or negative context. The Lord could visit, for instance, like in the book of um, in the book of Ruth. Uh, so you have uh, Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people. What does that mean? The famine is over and there's bread in the city again. 
Okay, so the Lord can visit and bring blessing and help and comfort. The Lord can also visit and bring judgment and wrath. The reality is that Christ will bring both. Through the cross, Jesus will bring deliverance. And through the Romans, God will bring judgment, temporal judgment, in the destruction of the city. Now, even as we wrestle with concepts of divine sovereignty and human responsibility here, we must not miss what is absolutely clear in this text. The tenderness and compassion of Christ toward lost and rebellious sinners. As his disciples, we ought to follow in his way in cultivating a similar tenderness, longing and heartache for those who are headed for destruction. This remains one of the chief motivations for sharing the gospel. Why do we share the gospel? Because it is the good news of grace for who? For sinners. It is good news for us. And so Jesus laments over the destruction of the city even as we may lament over what's going on in our culture, what's going on in our society, what's going on in our city, what's going on in our family, we may, what's going on in our friend's life. Lamenta- Why do you think like a, a third of the Psalms are laments of God's people crying about, to God about how awful everything is? God actually has a songbook to sing about how terrible everything is. And some people are like, that's my songbook, right? Don't give me those happy, clappy tunes. I want to sing about how awful everything is, all right? Because we need to. Because we need to. Because things are terrible in, in many cases and in many ways, even as there are also blessings upon blessings and mercies upon mercies. So Jesus laments over the coming destruction of the city. And then Jesus reforms the defiled temple. And he begins in verse 45 by righting a wrong. And so uh, I was going to put up a diagram of the temple and of Herod's temple. And I was looking at it and I was like, actually, it was really unnecessary. It was going to be way more complicated because the basic idea is that uh, there's, you, have the temple, you have the temple complex and there were courts for that, that everybody would go into. And starting from the inside out, you would have you know, the closest to the Holy of Holies, right, is going to be the court of the priests. And then the next, the, the next court is going to be uh, the court of men, of Jewish men, who are acceptable to go in. And then the next court uh, um, was, a, uh, was the court of women, of Jewish women that would go in. And then that was, the, that was the primary temple complex. And then outside of that was a giant area, and that was the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could go. And that's as far as the Gentiles could go. Now, it was not always practical, because remember, back in those days, you, I mean, I noticed no one brought their sacrificial goat to worship today. Uh, you know, well, you used to have to do that. If you were going to go to the temple at Passover, you had to bring a sacrifice for sin. And so now it wasn't always practical to haul livestock uh, across on your journey. And so um, it's not practical, that practical now, uh, and it's not, it wasn't practical then, especially. So a lot of times you would just bring money and you would purchase your sacrifice there at Jerusalem. 
Well, you know, so, so the uh, uh, people who want to make some money in Jerusalem, they say, hey, this is my, this is my big day, right? So, you know, it's kind of like those um, uh, uh, the, the resorts, and they'll make, like, all their money in, like, three months, right? Like, during the summer, or for, like, a ski resort, they'll make it during the winter. You know, they make all their money in three months. I imagine it's kind of like that uh, during Passover, Right, it's usually like I'm making most of the money I'm going to make this year is going to be in this one week, <laughs> where we have two hundred thousand people coming into the city. And so, what do they do? Well, they say, "Hey, we're going to put ourselves in the most convenient place, right on your way, in the, and uh, right on your way to go make your sacrifice, and we're going to set up in the court of the Gentiles because who cares about them anyway, right?" And so, you could go and buy your buy your sacrifice and take it in. And, uh, and, and uh, proceed uh, with, uh, with the sacrifice giving over to the priests. The problem, of course, is that the court of Gentiles was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to come to worship God. If men like the centurion in the book of Acts wanted to go worship God during Passover, that's as far as they could go. It's so, it's so, but you go in and you can't worship God because the... the uh, because the court of the Gentiles has become a bazaar. It has become a marketplace. And so Jesus begins to drive them out. Now, I would actually argue that this, Jesus' action here is not what makes the chief priests and the scribes and the important men want to kill him. I think they actually would have been on board with, I, don't, I think they've been relatively indifferent, honestly, being like, yeah, yeah, yeah they probably they shouldn't be there. It's better that they're not there. Yeah, move them out you know, further out, uh, out, out of the court of Gentiles. That's fine. All right. What really sets them off is, is, is not Jesus clearing out uh, the, the court of Gentiles so the Gentiles can actually worship God there. What really sets them off uh, is what he, uh, Jesus does when he begins correcting the record in verse 46. Jesus combines two quotations from the prophets. Uh, first, he combines uh, one from the first one comes from Isaiah. The second one comes from Jeremiah. And he quotes uh, Isaiah in Isaiah 56, verse, uh, 56, verse 7, that says, um, My house shall be a house of prayer. And the text uh, comes from the, this gracious uh, section in the, uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, in fact, uh, scholars even call Isaiah 40 through 66 Isaiah's gospel. And, uh, and the, or the, I have a book that's even titled, entitled The Gospel According to Isaiah <laughs> that, that focuses on those chapters. And, uh, and uh, in, in Isaiah 56, it's talking about um, how uh, the, the good news essentially will be coming to those who are normally rejected outside of the Jewish people, to people who are eunuchs, who according to Deuteronomy were not allowed in the assembly. To, to, uh, to the barren woman uh, who was uh, suffering uh, childlessness, uh, that, that he caused those who, who suffer and sorrow in this way to sing for joy. And here he says, my house shall be a house of prayer uh, for all the nations. And so Jesus zones in here on God's plan and purpose for prayer to be amongst his people and, and, and ultimately including the nations of the world. But there's a problem with the fulfillment of this, uh, of this vision from Isaiah for the people of God because Jesus attaches to that a quote from my, Jeremiah 7.11 where the prophet declares that, uh, that the people, that the, G- the Israelites, uh, have made 
the temple, his house, into a den of robbers. Now, in Isaiah 7, or in Jeremiah 7, uh, the, the prophet there is confronting a, the, the superstitious nature that has developed uh, with Israel and the temple. Because they thought the fact that the temple existed uh, meant that they would always have God on their side, uh, even if they disregarded his commands. They literally had a, had a phrase that they would like to repeat. It was saying that we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. And, and Jeremiah says, don't say that. And if, and if you want to know, go, look, go refresh your memory, go over to Shiloh and look at what I did to that there. And he reminds the people that God is not uh, one who needs buildings, who is served by human hands. Jeremiah reminds them uh, uh, that, that the same thing that happened to Shiloh can happen again. And Jesus quotes Jeremiah from that chapter. This is what sets everyone off. Jesus here is essentially uttering a curse in the temple due to the false and nominal worship that's being offered there. But what's so offensive is saying, hey, it took 40 years to build this temple. How dare Jesus say anything against the temple? But before we think too harshly of the Jewish leaders here, we must be careful that we do not do a similar thing in the church. We see in the book of Revelation, in the letters, uh, in the letters of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus utters rebukes and even threats against churches for a variety of reasons. These church, uh, churches who have kept the truth but lost their love for God and neighbor. Churches that have, that have loved their neighbor well but have given up the truth in exchange for idolatry and engaging in sexual immorality. Churches that have become asleep at the wheel. Churches that have become lukewarm due to their affluence and their love of comfort. Jesus threatens them to remove their lampstand, to vomit them out of his mouth. And so we must examine ourselves by Jesus' words. If we are a house of God, are we a house of prayer? Is prayer something we do together? Is it something that we do on our own? Are we a house of prayer for all the nations? Do we welcome all who come under the banner of Jesus Christ, no matter where they come from? You know, we renovated our sanctuary, and we're in the process of going to be redoing the entire, essentially, looks, not, uh, the, the front of the church, a lot of the front of the church. Um, and... Uh, and so it's a, and eventually we're going to get the hallway and the classrooms and, we're going to, and the kitchen and we're going to renovate it all. And it's going to look beautiful and wonderful. Okay? But we must not look at the presence of a renovated, updated, beautiful building as the sign that our church will exist forever. If there is no faith, if there is no obedience. There is no love for God and, and Christ and upholding of the truth, of, of true worship. 
Rather, we need to give thanks to God for the building, give thanks to God for the renovations which go into it. But let us not forget that this picture of the city and the temple is not meant to point ultimately to the church, but ultimately it's meant to point us to the eternal city, to the new Jerusalem that is coming, described at the end of the book of Revelation. To the glorious temple that is spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation. Actually, there is no physical temple because the people of God are the temple in whom he dwells. And so we conclude here by responding to Jesus. And in verses 47 to 48, there are only two responses to Jesus. Uh, there, of course, the, the chief priests, scribes, and the important men, they, they want to kill Jesus. <laughs> they want to destroy Jesus for what he says and what he does. Uh, they they, they want to re- re- destroy his message. They want to destroy what he represents. Now, I want you to think about that here, though. Here are men with good intentions, right? They are do- they're thinking what they're doing. They're... they're, they're, they're Why? Because they're serving God. They're defending the Lord and the Lord's house against this upstart troublemaker. But along the way, with their good intentions, their understanding and their priorities got so skewed that now in service to the Lord, they want to kill the Messiah. There is a religious way to drive out the gospel from the people of God and the church today. It starts by giving lip service to the gospel while you put less important things front and center. That's where it starts. And eventually, the gospel just quietly gets forgotten and replaced. And then we have become the Pharisees. We have become the scribes and the priests, and the important men. Because when we come across Christ's actual words, we find them offensive, and we don't want them. What we want, what we should desire, is the second response. It's it's the very thing that that was hindering the men, from, at, at least at the moment, from carrying out their plans against Jesus. And it was... Simply that the people were hanging on Jesus' every word. These are the people who are hearing Jesus, coming to recognize the faults and the failures of their religious system. And what will save our good intentions from becoming corrupted is not the purity of our intentions, but repentance and reformation. Because what is Reformation? Reformation is simply recentering our life and theology on the person and work of Christ, on the gospel. And we could all sit down, and I would sit down with you, and we could recite many of the good intentions that have gone awry, good intentions we had this morning that have already gone off the rails and are in the ditch. What about our good intentions in service to God? The reality is, and we need to understand, is that Christ went to the cross, not just for our sins, but for our good intentions. 
our good intentions that have fallen to the dirt. He died for our sin to give us eternal life so that we would one day live with him in the eternal Jerusalem, the new city. Not so that we would go simply go visit Jerusalem and the Temple Mount as it gets today. Go do that. That's wonderful. That's fun. That's fun. Okay? But that one day we would join him and live with him in the new heavens and the new earth in a city and as a temple that no one will tear down, that no one will destroy. And so as we prepare for that, and as we live in this world, let us hang onto the words of Jesus and repent and reform our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a wonderful Savior, a Savior who redeems us not merely from the ugly and disgusting thoughts of our sinful thoughts and desires of our hearts, when those corruptions just come out, but even our unreasonable and often vainglorious good intentions that are not often actually meant to serve you, that are at the end of the day often meant to serve us, to serve our pride, to serve our reputation. So, Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who redeems every bit of us, that there is no part that he is surprised by. We thank you for a Savior who weeps over the lost and calls us to do the same. We pray, Father, that we would recover that, where we have become hardened towards the lost, where we have become hardened towards sinners. We pray that you would soften us, that we would weep with the Lord Jesus over those who, who, who reject you, that we would cry out for them, and that we would hold out to them the word of life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as the church, as the living temple of the living God, that we would not become a den of robbers, but that we would indeed become a house of prayer for all the nations. That as living stones, we would offer up our spiritual sacrifices that are, we know, as Peter says, are made acceptable to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless us, that we would get, lift up worship to you and be a people that are marked by a tenderness and compassion for the lost and marked by the activity and work of prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.